As soon as their soccer practice ended, they raced through the rice paddies on their bicycles and up into the forested hills that lately had been blanketed in rain. Their destination? The Tom Loong Cave. This was a favorite spot for the boys we now know as the Wild Boars. Twelve boys and their coach, with only torches in their hands, raced into the cave, only planning on being in there for an hour. Unfortunately, they wouldn't emerge until two weeks later. Deep in the cave, the wild boars found themselves in much trouble. It had been raining for the last few days, and all that water falling on the mountain had to go somewhere. That somewhere was the Tom Loon Cave system, which was filling up quickly. They say that the cave can flood up to 16 feet during the rainy season and should only be entered between the months of November and April. And once the cave floods, it's risky even for experienced divers. The boys were caught off guard by a flash flood. They needed to get out, but instead had no choice but to scramble even deeper into the cave. They found themselves marooned on a small rock, a little rocky shelf about four kilometers from the cave entrance. They lost all sense of time but were determined to survive when they began to use rocks to dig deeper into the shelf and create a cavern where they could huddle together and keep warm. Now came the hardest part, the rescue. No one knew where the boys were. No one had an idea of how to rescue them from the flooded cave. They called in U.S. Air Force rescue specialists and cave divers from the U.K., Belgium, Australia, Scandinavia, and many other countries, the best rescue specialists in the world. On July 2nd, just over a week later, two British divers finally found the boys. The divers screamed, how many of you? Thirteen, came the reply in broken English. Thirteen? Brilliant. They're all alive. The boys were joined by a military medic and Navy SEAL divers who would stay with them, those guys, for the rest of the ordeal. Now, rescuers had to figure out how to extract 13 people, most of whom couldn't swim. And they had to rescue them from a winding, flooding, four-kilometer-long stretch of caves that even experienced divers struggled with. Time wasn't on their side because they were expecting heavy rains in three days. On July 7th, after the boys had been in the cave for two weeks, the Thai authorities announced they were pulling the boys out right now. They had a tiny space of time. It was going to be a detailed and risky process, and they knew that by July 10th, the entire cave system would be completely flooded. They launched what was later called a superhuman rescue effort. One that involved nearly 100 divers. Oh, I wish I could give you the process of the rescue. It was meticulous. It was carefully planned. It was courageous. It was miraculous. But one by one, the wild boars were brought out of the darkness of the Tom Loon Cave. Rescuers took them out in three batches over three days. Miraculously, all 12 boys and their coach survived. One Navy SEAL is quoted as saying, We are not sure if this is a miracle. 
science or what? I submit to you, it's God. Who divinely intervened and used courageous men and women to rescue these young people. The dictionary says of the word salvation that it means deliverance from harm, ruin, or loss. Would you agree that the rescue that took place in this flooded cave was nothing short of salvation? In fact, I submit to you it was a beautiful portrait of salvation. But as beautiful, as heartwarming, as inspiring as this story was to follow, there's an even greater portrait of salvation. And it's found in the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Would you turn there in your Bible? This text is one long paragraph written by the Apostle Paul. And it's separated into four headings. Simply these, you were but God by grace through faith. There are two types of people that I'll be speaking to in the congregation today, spiritually speaking. Every single person under the sound of my voice falls in one of these two categories. There are those who are saved and those who are lost. The message has a twofold purpose and will speak to both types of people today. It will serve, first of all, as a reminder to the saved. Some might seem to think a message on salvation couldn't apply to those who are already saved, but that could be further from the truth. Those that are saved need to be regularly brought to the point of what the gospel did in their life. Because if the gospel gets old, the heart grows cold. It'll be a reminder so as to bring the saved back to a point of thankfulness for the great work of salvation that God's done in your life. For the lost, it won't be a reminder. It will be an invitation. I'm going to preach out of this text, inviting the lost to experience this great salvation by God's wonderful grace. I'm going to invite the lost to be delivered from potential ruin, harm, and loss. Let's begin with the first heading of the passage, you were. Verse number one of chapter two. And you hath he quickened who were. Like most portraits that are started on a blank canvas, Paul's portrait of salvation didn't start beautiful. In fact, it was quite messy as he started with our pre-Christian past. And he's going to show us who we were before Christ with three simple descriptions. Verse 1, he says, you were dead. Of course this means spiritually dead. That is, a dead man spiritually is unable to understand and appreciate spiritual things. The spiritually dead man possesses no spiritual life, can do nothing of himself to please God. One of the first indications of physical death is the body's inability to respond to stimulus, no, no matter what it might be. A dead person cannot react. He can no longer respond to light, sound, smell, taste, pain, or anything else. He is totally insensitive, and that's the way it is with spiritual death as well. 
A person who is spiritually dead has no life by which he can respond to spiritual things, much less live a spiritual life. Notice what Paul said he's dead in. Trespasses and sins. Simply means that those who are without Christ, the lost, and those who are saved who were once lost, they were bound by their sin. They're totally held captive by their sin. They're dead in their sin and without hope. Theologically speaking, Paul is describing the total depravity of man. That means that when you were without Christ, you weren't kind of dead. You weren't sick. You weren't diseased. You were altogether dead. You did not need recitation. You needed resurrection. Paul says, you were dead. He says this, you were disobedient. And he says, this is why you were disobedient. He gives us three things that those without Christ tend to follow and that we followed before we were saved. Look at verse number two. Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world. He said you were disobedient because you followed the world. Look up here. He's not talking about the world in which we live. He's talking about the world system. The, the, the culture around us, the society. In other words, those who, who don't have Christ, those before they were saved were controlled by the world's influences, the values of our culture. You assume the attitude of the world, the habits of the world, the lifestyle of the world, and you were disobedient. On top of that, you were disobedient because you followed Satan. Don't get offended. Look at the scripture. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Satan was disobedient himself. That's why he got kicked out of heaven. And his number one goal is to make you disobedient as well and to keep you disobedient to, to God. One of Satan's chief tools that he uses to cause us to disobey the Father is lying. He is the father of lies. It started all the way back in the beginning when he got Adam and Eve to sin by lying to them. He said, ye shall not surely die. And what happened? They became children of disobedience. And those who are without Christ, they buy. I mean, they bite into the hook of the lies of the evil one, and they follow him into pleasures and sensuality and, and much sin, and they become children of disobedience. But then there's a third thing we follow before we are saved, and that's our flesh. Look at verse number three. Among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Listen, the flesh is not referring to the body because in itself the body's not sinful. The, 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 the flesh refers to that fallen nature that we were born with that, that wants to control the body and the mind and make us disobey God. Think about it this way. Consider the way a dog behaves. A dog pants, it barks, it runs, it chews, it bites. Now consider the way a cat behaves. A cat is a child of the devil, by the way. It doesn't bark, it meows, it doesn't bite necessarily, it claws. It doesn't run as much as it might climb. A cat is very different from a dog, and here's the point. A dog behaves like a dog because he has a dog's nature. And a cat behaves like a cat because it has a cat's nature. So why does a lost sinner behave like a lost sinner? Because he has the nature of a sinner. Amen. The sinful nature is called the flesh. Before you were saved, you were ruled by the flesh. You were governed by your sinful desires. And that led to much disobedience, Paul said. You were dead. You were disobedient. He says, thirdly, you were doomed. 
Look at the last part of verse 3. And we're by nature the children of wrath. Hell's a real place. Prepared for the devil, it's demons, and all those who reject the Lord Jesus Christ. Hell is a place where the Bible says there is torment. I don't like preaching on this, but it's the absolute truth. The Bible says of hell that there's wailing and gnashing of teeth. It's a place where the worm dieth not. It's a place where the fire is never quenched. It's a place of utter darkness. It's a place where there's a bottomless pit and there's eternal falling. Hell is eternal. It's a fixed state. It's irreversible. Those who are not found written in the land's book of life were cast into the lake of fire. And the smoke of their torment, the Bible says, goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night. Before you were saved, you were doomed to spend an eternity in a real place called hell. But listen to me. Paul doesn't stop painting the portrait there. If he did, it'd be ugly. If he did, it wouldn't make sense. It would simply say this, you were dead. You were disobedient. You were doomed. Case closed. I'm thankful the case isn't closed. I'm thankful that God, with his artistic abilities, stepped into the picture. I'm thankful he began to paint a beautiful portrait because the next heading of the text says this, but God. The portrait is about to go from messy to beautiful because God steps right into the middle of the mess. These words indicate a divine intervention. You were dead. You were disobedient. You were doomed, but God. And Paul begins to explain four activities that God performed on behalf of sinners to save them from the consequences of their sin. And he starts in verse 4 by saying, but God loved you. Look at verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love, wherewith he loved us. Church, I'm thankful that God loved me just as I was. He loved me when I was dead. He loved me when I was disobedient. He loved me when I was doomed. But I'm, I'm even more thankful that he loved me too much to leave me that way. Paul writes in Romans 5, but God commendeth his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. May this verse never get old to you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God said, because I love you, I gave you my son so that you don't have to stay in the back of the cave. You don't have to stay dead and you don't have to stay disobedient and you don't have to stay doomed. But it gets better in verse 5. But God quickeneth you. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ by grace, you're saved. That word quickened simply means to be made alive. Do you remember when Lazarus, Jesus' really close friend, had been dead for several days? Jesus didn't, you know, mind to show up when everybody thought he should show up. But he was right on time. And do you remember whenever he said, Lazarus, come forth? Did Lazarus stay dead? No, what was dead was made alive. And that's a picture of what happens to us at the moment of salvation. It's not a progressive quickening. Salvation doesn't evolve or happen over time. For some of you, you were dead, and maybe you heard your name 
called forth by the Holy Spirit or by God himself when you were sitting in a vacation Bible school, when you're in a revival meeting, when you're in a church service. For me, you know, when I heard God say, Tyler, come forth, was on the edge of my dad's bed. When was it for you when God said, your name, come forth? At that moment, instantaneously, what was dead was made alive. But I'm thankful it doesn't end in the graveyard. It gets even better. Look at verse 6. And hath raised up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. But God exalted you. We aren't raised from the dead and left in the graveyard. One man said this, God brought us out of the graveyard of sin into the throne room of glory. We're talking about Lazarus. John chapter 11, he came out of the tomb alive, quickened. He wasn't just almost dead. The guy was stinking he was so dead. When he came out, Jesus didn't leave him there. You can turn to the very next chapter in John chapter 12, and guess where Lazarus is? He's sitting at the table with Jesus. He's exalted to the same exact table as the Savior of the world, the Messiah. And, and that is a great picture of what happened to us. God called us out of the graveyard of sin to sit with him and enjoy his sweet fellowship. In fact, it says that we can approach his throne boldly. Fellowship with him in heavenly places every day. It gets better, verse 7, he keeps you. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Oh, this is good. He didn't just save us from hell, though that's really great. He saved us so that for all eternity, in the ages to come, we might experience the riches of his grace. Paul is saying instead of everlasting wrath, those who are saved because of God get to experience everlasting grace. The good news of this verse is the clear implication. That if God has an eternal purpose for us to fulfill for ages to come, then that must mean he intends to keep us saved for all eternity. We call it eternal security. I'm glad that because I did nothing to earn my salvation, I can do nothing to lose my salvation. I'm thankful that I am kept by the power of God. I'm thankful that I am safe within Jesus' hand. And the Bible makes it clear that no man can pluck me out. Paul says you were dead. He says you were disobedient. He says you were doomed. But God loved you. But God exalted you. But God quickened you. But God keeps you. This is all wonderful, but how did it happen? Next word, by grace. Look at verse 8. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast what is grace it's when you get something you don't deserve someone has called it a merited favor when god gave us salvation when he delivered us from the consequences of sin listen to me it wasn't because we deserved it it was all because of his grace we got something we didn't deserve can i tell you a couple things about this grace number one it's for everyone it wouldn't be called grace if it was stingy. Consider the man who is writing about this grace, the Apostle Paul. If he was here, he would give you his testimony of grace, and it would sound like this. Hello, Fellowship Baptist Church. A couple thousand years ago, I hated Christians. 
so bad I murdered them. Just like you see ISIS on the news. That was me. I didn't behead them. I had my men throw stones at them for hours. They died a painful death. They had to bleed to death. I was on my way to see the high priest, strategizing how I could rid the world of these Jesus followers, and I truly thought I was doing the right thing. Then suddenly I was blinded by a bright light, and I was not completely off my horse. I heard a voice say, why persecutest thou me? I knew exactly who it was. It was the voice of the Lord. He sent me to a man by the name of Ananias. He was a kind man. He should have stoned me. He should have persecuted me. He should not have given me the time of day. But instead this man loved me. Though nervous, he took me in, prayed for me, laid hands on me, caused me to be able to see again. He then baptized me. He told me that I, Paul, the man who persecuted Christians for a living, was now chosen by God to preach the gospel. He would want us to understand today, I was the worst of the worst. I was the chiefest of sinners. I was the most wicked man you could find anywhere. I was dead, Paul would say. I was disobedient. I was doomed. But he would say, but God, by his grace, save me. And Paul would want to make it real clear, if he can save me, he can save anybody. Yeah, Brother Tyler, but I'm not the man I should be. Not the father I should be. I'm not the husband I should be. Two words for you, by grace. Well, I've really messed up. I've betrayed someone I've loved. I've been divorced. I've messed up my marriage. I've disappointed my children by grace. I'm ashamed of my past. I have so many skeletons in the closet. If you only knew, by grace. Well, I'm an alcoholic. God's grace is greater. I'm a drug addict. God's grace is greater. I'm, I'm, I'm a felon. God's grace is greater. I'm an angry person and have been for years. God's grace is greater. And it's for everyone. Can I tell you something else about God's grace? It's a free gift. Did you notice what Paul said? That it is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Paul is saying that because salvation is by grace and because it's a free gift, the price has already been paid. It leaves your tab reading zero. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Over 2,000 years ago, Jesus laid over a Roman whipping post and took lashes for you. He had that, that cross placed on his shoulder and walked down the Via Della Rosa hearing the mocking, feeling the moisture, the spit, the sarcastic remarks for you. Jesus walked up the place of the skull, Golgotha, Calvary, where they hooked him on that cross, placed it forward, and all his weight sunk on them nails for you. He took the crown of thorns for you. He took the spear for you. He took the ridicule for you. No, 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 listen. Salvation is free for you, but it wasn't free for God. It was the price he paid 
that made it a gift for you. You don't earn it. You don't work for it. You don't buy it. If you could, it ceases to be a gift. I've never given my son a gift and required $5 in return. In fact, I've never even given a gift and said, okay, now you've got to behave and mind your mom for the next five days or I'm taking that away. It ceases to be a gift. I was riding a bus back when I drove bus for the school district. Coach began to ask me some questions. We got off the bus, and I asked him to meet me somewhere the next day, and we could talk about it. He was asking me questions about salvation. And so we met here at the church, and uh, I asked him if he's ever been saved. He said, no, I haven't, not after you explained it to me that way. I said, you want to get saved? And he said, oh, I'd love to get saved, but I can't right now. I said, why can't you right now, coach? He said, I just need to get my act together first. By the way, that's a common struggle. People think before they come to a perfect Jesus, they have to be as close to perfect as they possibly can be. But that's like having a clean, shiny, pristine-looking car on the outside without an engine. It'll look good on the outside, you just won't go anywhere. And a lost person who tries to clean up before they show up, they won't go anywhere. Do you understand that because it's a gift, because it's free, you, can do, you can't clean up enough to earn that kind of gift. It's by grace. Aren't you thankful you don't have to get baptized? You don't have to give. You don't have to be benevolent. You don't have to be a church member. You don't have to partake in communion. All of those things are, are works that follow legit salvation, but they don't earn you salvation. So my response is simply this. How do I get, get this gift? Last heading, through faith. Look at verse 8. For by grace are you saved through faith. Faith is the human response to what Christ has already done for you. That kind of faith Paul is talking about is more than just a mental assent for James says that the devil even believes and trembles. It's more than just knowing it in your brain. It's believing it in your heart. Paul is talking about a belief that commits. What is our belief in? Our belief is in the finished work of Christ on the cross. This is it. Look up here. Romans 10 verse 9. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. What are you to believe that Jesus died? What do you believe that Jesus was buried? What are you to believe that Jesus rose again, that you might be saved? And you might be thinking, I've never seen this man Jesus. I've never touched this man Jesus. I've only heard about this man Jesus. And you're asking me to place all my eggs into the basket of someone I've never met and someone I don't even fully understand. Well, I believe you, you actually perform those little acts of faith every day. Why can't you do it with Jesus? What do you mean? Well, tomorrow morning, my wife Jenny and son Kevin and myself will go to the liberal airport and we'll board an airplane. I have no idea how the airplane stays in the air without coming down. I don't know what kind of engine it'll have. I've never met the pilot. 
Likely he won't greet me at the door and say thanks for flying with me. I'll see the back of his head, maybe, flipping the switches. I'll go back and I'll, I'll sit down on my seat and I'll buckle the seatbelt so as to say I have a faith that commits. I'm not just buying a ticket. I'm not going to ask a million questions. I'm not going to ask any questions. I don't understand the airplane. I've never met the pilot, but I'm going to get on the plane by faith. And those prescriptions you take from that doctor that you don't know well, by faith. Laying in a hospital bed and they're putting stuff in your IV that you don't even know what it is, by faith. Going down the highway, passing other people at 70 miles an hour, trusting them, by faith. Sitting on that chair right now, hoping it wouldn't fall, break, or collapse, you didn't even think about it. You had a faith that commits. If you can do that every day, why can't you trust Jesus? Who not, not only does the Bible prove it's true, but history is undeniable about the authenticity of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there it is. A beautiful portrait of salvation. You were, but God, by grace, through faith. If you're saved here today, the message can be summed up for you like this. You were dead, but God made you alive by his grace and through your faith. If you're thankful for that, say amen. amen. If you're lost here today, the message could be summed up like this. You are dead, but God can make you alive by his grace and through your faith. And he might be telling you what he told Lazarus. Come forth. Oh, but I'm not ready. You'll never be ready. Uh, you don't know what I did last night. I don't know how I found myself in a church house. God, God brought you here. And, and he, he was where you were last night because he's all-knowing, all-powerful. And he's present everywhere. You're not pulling one over him. Why don't you come confess to him what he already knows about you? He'll wash you clean. He'll love you. He'll quicken you. He'll exalt you. And he'll keep you. There's a man born in 1725 whose name was John. He was a mess. He worked on a ship. He was hated by all his shipmates. He was a raging drunk he was immoral he cussed like a sailor literally his nickname was the great blasphemer his captain on the ship said of his language not only did he use the worst language I've ever heard he created new words that exceeded the limits of verbal debauchery he was so hated that one time he got drunk fell overboard and his shipmates didn't even throw him a life preserver John was so rebellious that his captain stripped him naked gave him eight dozen lashes in front of 350 of his shipmates. He is so embarrassed, so mad, that he made a plan to murder his captain and then take his own life. Before he got to execute that plan, a storm hit their ship. Many lost their life that day, including John's best friend that was right beside him. That sent John to the darkest time of his life. And he found himself crying this, to a God he struggled his whole life to believe in. Lord, 
have mercy on me. Have mercy on us all. God miraculously saved his life from that storm. And he began to read the Bible out of curiosity. He realized God was real. And it wasn't long before the Lord changed his life. And in 1772, John Newton wrote this song. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost. But now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. As a recovering drunk, he wrote this. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace. My fears relieved How precious did That grace appear The hour I first believed Because of the storm, he wrote this one many dangers, toils, and snares I had already come. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far. And grace will lead me home. When he read his Bible, learned of heaven, he wrote this. When we then there, sing with me, church. Ten thousand bright shining as the sun we've no less day to sing God's praise and when we've heard become every head bowed and every eye closed I have no idea who found their way into Fellowship Baptist Church on a summer Sunday. I can't help but think there might be one or two or three, an audience this size, who doesn't know Jesus. And I would hate for you to be stuck in the cave and a salvation, a rescue mission was underway. And Jesus said, come forth. And you said, no, I'll just stay here. 
I'll stay dead. I'll stay disobedient. I'll stay doomed. If I were to ask you, are you 100% for sure that you are saved? Could you raise your hand right now and say, I know that I know. Raise your hand. Raise it. Praise His holy name. There were some that couldn't raise their hand. Can I talk to you for a moment? The grace of God wants to reach you right where you're at. But you have to believe. Believe He loved you enough to send His only begotten Son to die for you. You might not understand all the implications. You might not understand all the theology. You might not understand all of that. But you understand you're dead in your sins and you want to be made alive? Then you call upon the Savior. That's why in just a moment I'm going to pray. Congregation's going to stand. I think saved people that have been reminded of God's amazing grace will flood these altars. And you follow them. And you come straight to me down here on the floor and say, I want to be saved. You'll want to say anything in front of anybody. I'll simply show you and have a word of prayer with you. We'll take you into a room privately, not force you, but explain to you how you can be saved. Is that hard? You bet it's hard, but hell is harder. Being doomed is harder. Don't let your pride keep you in your seat. Let me show you the love of God. Fathers, I pray right now.